0: Welcome to A Moment with Modern Mentors, a podcast series by Digital Collective Co. where we soak up wisdom, anecdotes and actionable tips from Australian startups, female founders, business leaders, industry pioneers and C-suite executives. A sway of people who have achieved amazing things in their professional fields. My name is Mia McLeod and I am the founder of Digital Collective Co. We are a collective of digital experts who have come together during a time of adversity, all aligned in the mission of finding a better way of working while simultaneously improving the balance in our life.
1: Hi, I'm Leah Wilson, the co-founder of Puffling and I am so excited to be joining Digital Collective today on their podcast talking about all things flexible work and the future of work.
0: Today I'm speaking with the very charismatic and courageous Leah Wilson, founder of Puffling platform launched with the mission of connecting senior talent with organizations who endorse flexibility and value gender diversity at a leadership level. Leah launched Puffling in 2017 and has been navigating the fascinating and sometimes tricky world of workplace flexibility, diversity and inclusion ever since. In three years, she has a master following of over 10,000 senior talent to the Puffling platform. She has won many awards and grants and she continues to refine and pivot her messaging in a rapidly evolving space. Hi, Leah. It's so great to talk to you today, even if it has to be via Zoom in this really strange time. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Well, Thank you for having me. And I'm so delighted to see you, even though, as you say, it's on <laughs> Zoom. But I have to say,
0: there are benefits
1: of video conferencing. It's not really a day I want to be outside anywhere.
0: So, I am actually really excited to talk to you today because although, and for the listeners' knowledge, we have known each other for an extraordinarily long time, we won't age ourselves by disclosing how long, but we don't often get to have like really in-depth chats about the business side of life. So, I'm really looking forward to talking to you about what's going on with you and Puffling and finding out, you know, what's happening in this very topical work flexibility space. I'm excited to share Well, let's just jump straight in. So why don't you give us a quick journey through your career and what led you to the launch of Puffling?
1: So I've always been a very passionate marketer, but particularly interested in digital businesses and I've had a real affinity towards marketplace businesses. And about three or four years ago now, I launched Puffling, which is a platform that essentially supports senior talent looking for flexible careers and it enables businesses to access talent with a lens on both diversity, inclusion, but also creative ways to think about flexible work. And I guess after sort of 20 years in a varying number of corporate roles and different remix and different industries and verticals that I've worked in. Like many startup founders, I I found myself really wanting to start something that I felt very passionate about. Um, I was very connected to the purpose and I guess like a lot of founders also, often an idea comes from personal experience and that was certainly my, my view. I'd come to a point in my career where flexibility was really, really important to me. But so was my career and I was at a point where my career was, you know, going great guns and I was loving my job. I've always loved my job, but I had children and that obviously changed my my view of what my work-life balance should look like, what I needed from my career, what I wanted for my family. And of course, talking to people like you that I know my whole life, other people that I've worked with for many years, you know these themes kept coming through that purpose, passion was increasingly important to people. but the whole future of work was suddenly under the spotlight and I really felt that it was an opportune time to interrogate this space around recruitment and talent and where the future of work was all heading.
0: And I mean three or four years ago that probably felt quite nosebleed in terms of you know having those kind of conversations because really three or four years ago it was you know workplace for women who'd had children was still very traditional it was you know nine till six you know expected into the office how did you how did that work how did you approach the market and what was the response?
1: Uh, Positive I guess has been that flexible work has really come a long way in quite a short time when I look back to three, four years ago when it was often quite unusual to be seeing three or four people around an executive table working flexibly. Like it was quite abnormal in my experience, certainly.
0: And mine too. Yeah,
1: and, you know, that is a real positive. I think that although change sometimes feels slow and some things are questioned and, you know, often I'm, I'm left thinking, like, why are we even talking about this? This just makes complete sense. But there are challenges for people still to get their heads around how to make flexible work work and certainly I think at senior levels it becomes quite problematic when you've got issues around people management and managing you know complex client stakeholder relationships but you know here we find ourselves in this extraordinary time of COVID-19 and yeah, you know, this was my dream three months ago that the world would go globally remote and, you know, here we are, two weeks basically later, the whole world was working remote. I mean, not exactly the way that we'd all intended to see it unfold, but it's it's been a very interesting time to just see how things can be
0: done. Certainly forcing the hand in, in corporate Australia and corporate world. So what is Puffling? Tell us about what Puffling is to the, you know, the, the employee and the employer.
1: So, Puffling uh, is essentially a two-sided marketplace. So, on one side, you have talent or candidates who are looking for career opportunities. Maybe they're actively looking, they're not in a role or they're very keen to get into a new role, or they may be more passively seeking a new opportunity or interest.
0: Or looking for something that offers them the flexibility that they may not have currently.
1: Correct. So they may well be in a role, they're not quite in the industry, or they're not aligned to the purpose of the organisation they're working with, they're not feeling the culture's right for them, or just they're not getting the flexibility they want on need. Yeah. So that's typically the profile of the candidates or the talents we work with. And the other lens on it is the senior. So 92% of our community are female and 85% have over 15 years of experience. So we do skew towards that sort of corporate career professional. And then on the other side of Puffling are employers. So we typically work all sizes of employers, but people that are genuinely advocating for more flexible work solutions within their organisation. And the majority of clients we have have a very strong alignment and plan around what they want to do with their diversity and inclusive workforce, gender diversity particularly.
0: Was that the case three years ago or has that something you've seen that's happened over the course of, of, you know, being out in the market and kind of educating the market with puffling? Have you noticed a change in, in company culture?
1: Uh, Puffling, I think, has definitely seen that change from the types of briefs in the work that we were doing three years ago to now. Like, I think the key element for me has been always that flexibility and diversity go hand in hand. You know, flexibility is the driver to a more inclusive workforce, and it's a solution that provides a number of benefits across so many areas of the workforce. I think what has changed significantly for us is that three, four years ago, we were getting a lot of briefs from organisations that were specifically targeting gender diversity as an area that they wanted to improve on and that's still very much part of what we do but more recently I think the lens has shifted slightly and diversity of thought is now where many people are focusing their attention so obviously gender forms part of that strategy.
0: What does diversity of thought mean?
1: So I guess under the diversity banner, what we're trying to do is get to a point where we're not replicating the same hiring processes again and again and therefore coming up with the same results. And we also know that particularly in areas like tech, but there's a number of areas that it happens in, there tends to be patterns of hiring where someone might come into a role and usually it's a senior position and they'll bring in people that they know of that they've worked with before. And this is often a great thing because you've got that trust and collaboration and sort of that known entity or that, that known sort of ability to deliver. But it also tends to bring out a lot of bias in, in hiring and the way we do things.
0: And the same kind of candidates, I'm assuming.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you're also then dealing with people solving the same problems with the same types of lenses and approaches again and again and again. Mm. So obviously we know that women bring a different perspective to the boardroom table and executive management levels at all levels of the organisation. So the gender diversity thing is quite self-explanatory and evident. But then when you start to look at more complex problems that you may be trying to solve or you're trying to differentiate your business or your product or your brand, and then you, you kind of consider this concept of diversity of thought. You've got businesses in you know the US, there's some great examples where they're hiring people without Asperger's or people that have come from completely different socioeconomic backgrounds. Because if you're solving, say, a complex problem in health, you may not have a team of management consultants that have been to private schools and been educated a certain way that are going to give you the same perspective as someone else may. And it might just interrogate the way you've been thinking about a problem and the lens that you're putting on different problems and solutions. So I guess diversity of thought is a very broad concept and it talks about gender diversity as as sort of one element of that, but it's basically looking at all kinds of hiring practices and and enabling broader thought patterns to come into your organisations and solutions
0: it really is cutting edge thinking how has the pandemic and COVID-19 really changed, had to force you to change the way you're thinking because I guess if the whole world has suddenly become a remote working, flexible workforce, what does that mean for Puffling and what does that mean you need to do to kind of diversify your offering or pivot your offering to the new norm because I guess what you're doing here is constantly transforming the recruitment process within companies, is that right? You know,
1: Puffling's examination of the whole COVID-19 scenario and I guess the opportunities for us as a business, but also the opportunities in the space we sit in, which is really about the future of the work, has been pretty interesting. And we've had to move very quickly in thinking about what relevancy we have and where we can fast track things that we've cared about and advocated for some time. And then on the other hand, there's been areas which have become sort of much less important because... Things are becoming normalized very quickly. Mm. We were talking two, three years ago about things like level role share and the different types of job share arrangements that you put in place, agile teams, remote workers. And you know, this was quite novel for some hirers and employers to consider. Oh, I've never really thought about hiring someone in a different state. Well, I mean, hello, let's hire someone in another country now. It doesn't really matter if you've proven that you can work through this in a way that you've still got connecting teams and collaboration and, you know, your productivity and efficiencies are still in place. So on one hand, the flexibility conversation's been very fast-tracked. On the other hand, it's had a swing in talent and how we consider where our services may be relevant to employers and hirers.
0: It seems like there's probably a whole education piece around how businesses become better at communicating with the remote workforce. I mean, I think I guess businesses have been kind of pushed into this position very quickly over the last 6 weeks or so. You know, but very quickly, companies like Google and Facebook have have decided that their workforce don't need to be in the office for the rest of the year. Twitter yesterday announced that they don't need to come back at all if they don't want to. They can work remotely ongoing. Yeah. How do these kind of companies make decisions like this? I mean, everybody I speak to seems to want to work from home now. They, They feel comfortable. They're set up. They've got their office space. They're productive. And... Most of all, they're spending more time at each end of the day with their family. It seems like this is a very important change that's happening, but how do companies kind of adopt this really for the long term?
1: I think the flexibility element of what this has meant for businesses and how businesses move forward like pretty quickly out of COVID-19 is probably going to be a number one challenge for just executive level decision makers to make at a very rapid rate. So I feel it's been quite polarising. There's been some organisations that have just gone on their merry way, like it's business as usual, we've got everything set up, yes, okay, we're not seeing each other as much and all the rest of it. But really it's been a, a huge surprise of how well we've adapted and how well we've gone through our, our business processes and how well we've connected as a team and as a business. And you know, I've seen many reports and I know the media continually report on all the good news stories of how many businesses are seeing increases in productivity and more engagement from their teams and people obviously reporting that. I don't want to go back to the way it was. So, what are you doing about it? Like what, what are my options from, from here? There's talk now about you know, workforces slowly starting to resume and different types of models of what that might look like. From some saying we may not never, ever go back to the office model, and others saying it might be a rotational thing or a hybrid model, or other extremes saying, no, it's a phase return and we all end up back in the place we work. So, that's one spectrum. And then the other side, you've got businesses that were not at all set up for this you know some of the larger corporates some of the smaller businesses that may not have adopted technology at the same rate were almost feeling like they were under some kind of extreme handbrake where it was a flurry and we're still probably experiencing that in some businesses where people are still getting online. they're still figuring out how to do things that they used to do in meetings or you know, at some levels even not having the technology to access systems
0: I've spoken to a lot of people in the banking sector particularly who run these big BIS systems and software in office and they've really struggled to to go remote. Yes. So, obviously, technology plays a big part in, in this. Obviously, communication and marketing tools, you know, there was a, an example of Adore Beauty making a TV commercial in a week with a remote team. You know, that, there's innovations using marketing platforms that just make you know, doing work actually probably easier when everyone's remote and can, yeah. can, can do their own thing quite quietly and within their own space. What do you think the technology issues are around, you know, this kind of future working arrangement? And, and what does that mean in terms of Puffling? How does Puffling kind of get involved in that space? Is it education or is it kind of, you know, helping them adopt those Is and more consultancy? Where do you play in that? Is it something that you're kind of dipping your toe into?
1: Yeah, Pathline's had to evolve its thinking pretty quickly and its product offering to suit a very different needs and, I guess, experience for employers both at a level of people, culture, HR, but also hiring managers and executives in the business that are thinking now very, very carefully about how they're going to retain staff because I think, you know, I've got a very strong view about this. If you're not going to set up your workforce to be flexible and go into the future with a very different view, of how you engage your teams and you empower your the workforce, then they're going to go somewhere else. Like, this is the time to really remove all those sort of barriers and stigmas around trusting people and getting the job done and make it very outcome focused as much as you can. Mm. So, for us, I think the other opportunity that kind of came out of nowhere and we've just been piloting this over the last uh, month has been in the wellness area and acknowledging that the mental health aspects, widely reported, obviously. For many people for many different reasons, from health, financial stress, job loss, isolation, people handling that sort of concept, I suppose, in different ways. But if we just think about that from a sense of work only for a minute and that's our space, dealing with maybe children, homeschooling, a partner or maybe a flatmate in another room, competing with, you know, space, kitchen tables or study spaces or whatever. So you've got multiple people trying to be productive Earlier on in the crisis when it was just very confronting to sort of turn on the news every day and sort of still is but to sort of have this almost shock of what world are we in so people were grappling with this mental noise like it's news it's constant feeds and updates on your social you're on zoom calls you've got maybe children in the background you've got flatmates it was causing a lot of angst for a lot of people and it still is and we felt that the one thing that could really maybe help in a meaningful and quite relevant way was to offer opportunities for organisations to connect with their teams in a sense of mindfulness, productivity, and acknowledging this was hard. You know, this isn't something that everyone loved. This was for some people going to the office is their thing. They need people. they need interaction and they need structure and routine. And there are many there are many people that are missing that. Others are thriving and they, and they love this environment. So, yeah, we introduced some wellness into our product offering, and we've had some examples of companies just using 15 minute meditation sessions in the morning to connect their teams. They'll hold up, with a stand up, we'll have a guide, they'll run a guided meditation. And it's all about enabling people to just give 15 minutes of clear thinking that they can get off the call and prioritise their day and get rid of all the noise and, you know, different competing things that they're thinking about and worried about, um, which is not something we'd ever consider doing. And I don't think that the mental health aspect of what we're all dealing with now in the world is going to go away.
0: No. And it seems as the pandemic... Kind of situation in Australia has certainly been kind of flattened that the economic and certainly the mental health areas are definitely becoming the focus for, for us here. And, and certainly it sounds like businesses need to kind of put mental health at the top of the agenda for their, their people. Absolutely. So what do you think this, I mean, the prediction for what the future looks like beyond I guess twenty twenty, what do you think that means and what do you see as kind of going to be the the outlook in terms of, you know, hiring and the way that people go about getting a job? How is that going to have changed? Do you think that the the employee is or the candidate is in the hot seat and they're going to be really making all the decisions? Or do you think the employer with this global kind of ground of, of people that can come and go apply for a job is now in the hot seat? What what does it mean for the recruitment business?
1: The future of work is now, I think everything's up for grabs, it's it's really been turned on its head and some of the trends and predictions that we were talking about coming to life maybe five years time are are sitting with us right now, like things are imminent and there's a real opportunity I think for employers particularly to really lead with a very strong employer brand proposition and flexibility will just become table stakes in my view. If you're not doing it, if you're not offering it, then no one's going to want to work. So that's just a point. Like this is this is here, and it's not going away. I think the other interesting thing is that we're now, from a hiring perspective, dealing with a very rapid global workforce to, mm. to sort of mm. hire from. So in areas again, technology, digital, particularly, you don't need to hire from your competitive in your state anymore to get the best. Higher. This is about now broadening your thinking. And if someone is in another state or in a regional area or even in another time zone, why wouldn't you get the best talent available in the market? So I think that's going to shift and pose a very strong opportunity for people that they really want to think about talent position in a different way. I think another really strong theme that you know we're predicting is that there's going to be a move away from permanent roles as well. So This is a real opportunity post-COVID, I think, to sit back as a business and think about where have the opportunities come from within your internal structures and what are some of the areas maybe that haven't been as evident to you that you don't even need or you might be able to reorganise or redesign. So it's kind of offering a bit of a blank sheet of paper and one of the big areas in that obviously is how you design your teams, not just the way they work, but, you know, there's types of employment. So transformation you know why wouldn't you hire squads or teams or you know agile project teams and bring people in the best people you can get to do particular streams of work rather than hire these huge salaries for five years and their role might need to change every sort of three to six months.
0: Yeah that's such an interesting concept because I think that brings up you know such a, a broad kind of opportunity for businesses but it also brings up a whole heap of issues where people don't have permanent jobs anymore and so where does that stability for them come from and you know things like bank loans and mortgages and all those things that traditionally get anchored to someone being in a permanent salaried role how do how do we deal with that in a, in our modern world because there's a lot of repercussions that that the economy needs to kind of catch up with too yeah absolutely and you know I-
1: I don't know all the answers to how we're going to deal with some of these predictions because they're here well before we knew it. And I think some of the um, more senior candidates are particularly challenged by some of these questions at the moment because many that have been very comfortable and actually had a preference to working under contract candidates where they might have two or three jobs they're working for fairly extended periods of time. That doesn't now feel like the stable employment status that they might need in a time like this. But on the other hand, it feels like that's the way that things are very much going as we all head towards more agile thinking ways of doing business outside tech, you know, that all, all areas of the business will probably now start to move if they haven't already towards that more agile way of working and thinking.
0: Yeah, I mean, Agile is a word that's been kind of very much running in that kind of technology space for some time. And and it makes complete sense there. And as you're saying it and talking about hiring squads, it's really interesting, isn't it? It could be really applied to any type of team within a business organization. Absolutely. How does a squad work? How would you hire a squad?
1: I think hiring is just... You know, again, it's up for grabs. There are so many things that are coming out of this crisis in terms of reimagining the way that you might design your workforce, your teams, even the way that you manage your priorities in the business. So in the same way that you might recruit an agile tech team, you know, consider the same in hiring a squad and you might have someone in even an HR sense that instead of hiring generalists, you might just decide to dip into different talent and hire people for particular projects or transformation areas or maybe even different parts of the business that you're basically appointing roles within a team and hiring the best. And I think it's as simple as that. It's about accessing the best teams and the best talent that you can afford without necessarily having to write these long job descriptions and forecast what this role needs to look like over the next two years, which, you know, impossible. we all know is, is impossible, impossible
0: such a fascinating time for you. It must be completely, you know, invigorating in the sense that you are really having to think kind of about the future and what it looks like and how to apply it into a very practical sense to both candidates and employers. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what running a startup has been like for you? It's three years. You've won some awards, most recently BM Powered Empowered finalist, Sheo, Venture semi-finalist. You make it seem easy, but I'm imagining that that's not at all the case. What does it take to to run a startup and get it thriving?
1: I mean, being a startup founder is one of these very strange, almost addictions, that once you're in the space, you can't get out of it, but then you probably... Daily, I'd say, I question yourself about, isn't it just easy to go back into the workforce and get a job and learn to pay back in every month and just do what you're good at? So, I don't know. That's certainly been my experience. And I am probably someone that's come into start and being a founder at the worst time. Like, I would never <laughs> recommend it when you've got children, particularly young ones. I was on a call yesterday and I was listening to this amazing founder to speak of her experience and she's so successful and she's got an amazing business. But... You know, she was talking about the eighteen-hour days, the twenty-hour days, the, the way that she'd come home and she'd work till three or four in the morning. And you know, when you when you're doing that as a as a parent, and especially I, I had a couple of little ones at the time, it's not really conducive.
0: It's pretty tiring.
1: It is a very always-on strategy, and it's yeah, it's very addictive.
0: It could be said that you're in the best position for that with the running off minimal sleep, that that's all you need to be a startup founder. It could, and there's obviously
1: a lot of benefits and it's a real passion and it's an environment that's very invigorating, fantastic people and, you know, this kind of exciting world zero oyster view of the world every day. But everyone who's in it describes it as a roller coaster. It's so cliché, but it's so true. You know, you have a win, you feel like you're on top of the world and then the next day you're worrying about your cash flow, you're trying to build products that you wanted yesterday and you know it's taking too long and it is one of those things where you're just literally working across so many areas and so many disciplines and you do need to be a real generalist and be very very strict I suppose on your prioritization which sometimes becomes a bit tough when you want to do everything straight away.
0: And patient, I suppose, you have to really work your network. Yeah. You have to, you know, get jump on all those Zoom calls with female founders at all hours of the day to try and get that inspiration and networking. You know, talk us through what that looks like for you. What's your day look like? What's your process of kind of, you know, getting ideas off the ground? I'm sure you don't have abundance of money just sitting in a bank account waiting to be spent on, you know, pouring into more tech. How does it all work?
1: Look, I think as a startup founder, and particularly as a female founder, there are some fantastic resources, but also some amazing support groups and accelerators and networks. And there are a number of people in the community, hundreds and thousands of them, that are really generous with both their time and sharing their expertise. And although it's sometimes quite difficult to carve out time in your day to do those sorts of calls or jump on those videos, or attend the meetups, it's so valuable because you always walk away with some absolute nugget of information that, you you know, does change the way you think about solving the problem. So I try and do that a couple of times a week, even if it's not attending, you know, a Zoom call or a meetup, but it's definitely going into the resources. I'm part of a a group called Elevarco, which um, was an accelerator I did for female founders, and they have an amazing alumni. They have weekly Zoom calls where they'll bring someone on the call to share their experiences. We can to ask questions. Everyone shares a very honest account of where they're at and, and those sorts of things are so valuable. So I think it is about being quite humble in your approach on a daily basis to say, look, I don't know, a lot so wherever I can get help and get advice and start each day with exactly that sort of cliche again but that blank sheet of paper of what do I need to do today what am I trying to solve in terms of the bigger picture and kind of get that balance of achieving things on a day-to-day basis but never losing sight of the opportunity and vision because that's really where you're going to make it or not to have that sort of foresight.
0: Is it a commercial goal that you're chasing or is it more about changing an industry or is it a mindset or is it what, what, what's driving you? And, you know, obviously you need to, you need money to keep this business going. Do you private fund it or do you need to get investment? I know you've got a few grants that have obviously, you know, contributed, but what does that commercial process look like?
1: So for me as a startup founder, I think I had come into it with a combination of factors. I needed it to be commercial because I was leaving the job to do it. So it was never about just being a passion project or a side hustle. For me, it had to be a commercial business, which puts obviously extra pressure on both the business and, and yourself. The other thing for me, I was at a point in my career after doing something I had really loved for 20 years that purpose and being connected to what I was working in became more and more important and I think it's a combination of life stage but also where I was at know, having a family I didn't want to go to work and market something I didn't feel strongly about you know it became important to me that I was solving a problem I really cared about so that was that was my experience in terms of funding it's a real, I suppose, Pandora's box to sort of get in and there's more options than people may realise. So I think a lot of people come into it thinking, work for your garage, put your life savings into it and then you go out and raise money. You know, there, there's more options to that and obviously being able to fund some of your growth by either bootstrapping or cash flow is ideal. Um, but, you know, there's low-cost loans, there's different types of funding that's available. You know, finding an angel early on or a... Um, we did a family and friends round just to sort of get us ourselves to MVP. So raising a really small amount of money and pitching to people that sort of believe in you. And that's a typical way of doing it before you might go into market and look at a seed or a series A raise or whatever the case may be.
0: That's incredible and that's a great amount of insight actually into a startup business? Because I suppose there are just so many kind of ends of the scale in terms of what kind of approach you can take. And I guess it depends on where you're at in terms of your revenue and your commercial success. Would it be right in saying that, you know, puffling is disrupting the recruitment industry as a whole, or is it broader than that? I know you've had, well, you have some impressive clients like NBN, ANZ, IAG. How is working with those traditional businesses? worked and, and have there been any surprises along the way with those pitching the concept of, of what you're working on, diversity, gender equality and so on? How has that experience been with those kind of businesses?
1: thing I think started, and we tried to tackle industries that we felt needed the most help. So we thought, quite naively, sort of at the MVP stage of the business, that we go after businesses that really had a problem in attracting women to their executive teams. They had huge gender diversity gaps, huge pay gaps, and they also basically had no flexible working practice. And I think we pretty quickly realised that whilst we wanted to remain focused on that and change the game, we would have been out of business if that had been our sole focus. So we had to move to speaking to businesses that were already on that journey, already had passionate support within the business, examples of things that were happening, flexible work policies, diversity of people within the business that were championing the things that we cared about. So we kind of became a partner and, yes, absolutely, we wanted to disrupt the way that traditional worked and you know this was a personal belief of mine again being on the other side of the fence and sometimes having to hire that it wasn't necessarily right that you we were paying these exorbitant fees to get talent when there were different ways I think of operating and you know for puffling we really wanted to become more like a partner where we could take a brief you know what is it that you're finding most challenging have you got an issue with attracting women at certain levels or is it a particular pocket of the business that you can't seem to retain them Or are you struggling with how to implement flexible work policies? Are you supporting people returning part-time or is that too challenging? So what is it you're trying to solve and why do you think you're finding it hard to attract talent? And we were able to sign up, you know, very high-quality candidates pretty quickly because I think there were many that we were speaking to that were very disheartened by not only recruitment practices but hiring practices as well. So sort of being sold ideas that yeah you can come in, do three months and then we'll talk about flexible work. And in three months' time, hello, we're still working for it in our days and it's just not working for anyone. So yeah, I think it was very much an idea that we could disrupt traditional ways of hiring from both how we charge and also how we offer services. But really, I guess, being that solution to real problems and each organisation having different problems to solve.
0: And I think as you're talking, I'm just hearing you talk about recruitment in a very different way to how it's ever come across to me personally. Recruitment has always been quite transactional. It's, you know, put a job out there and then hire a person, at best do a kind of a background check and then suddenly they're working in your business. That seems like such an outdated model just in in saying it out loud, but it's still what's going on for probably 90% of recruitment, I'm assuming. What you're talking about is about actually personalizing that experience for both the candidate and the employer so that you can only assume a much better quality candidate will be fitted with the employer and you'd think a better outcome for everyone in terms of productivity, happiness, wellness, and commerciality. Is that the case? Yeah, I think Huffman's real
1: benefit to employers that we've partnered with has been the ability to bring off-market talent into their talent pools internally or into roles that they might be hiring. So you can go and put an ad up on LinkedIn or Secret number of other channels that offer great opportunities to get volumes of candidates. But I think where we've seen value is that people are signing up to Puffling and they're what I consider to be more passive job seekers. You know, they're only going to make a move for the right job under the right conditions. And they're very experienced and they're very senior and they've got amazing contributions to make, but they're not going to go and work anywhere. And so what we really felt strongly about and we've launched a product to support this is it's called Flex Partner and it's for the employers to showcase their brand. So for them to talk about why it's a great place to work, to share stories from within, to showcase what your diversity levels of leadership look like in terms of gender, how are your flexible work policies being rolled out. And that's what the candidates that sign up to us want to know about. You know, this is more about finding the right workplace culture and the right employment fit. And that's really important. This is not just about saying, here's a candidate with X experience and here's an employee with X experience that they're looking for on their job ad and, like, that's a match. This is about bringing new people into the mix and saying, have you considered four days a week? Or have you considered a compressed working week? Or would you do one day from home? Because this person's not going to apply for a full-time job that you're posting they might consider this and so we're trying to really think about differently
0: re-educate or educate the thinking yeah Well, that leads me on to something I was interested in talking to you about, which is about your technology, because you kind of make the experience pretty simple for the consumer, the audience, the candidate, and the employer. There's a platform that you've built, you've invested heavily in building that platform for the candidate, they're uploading their details and making that available for the employer to see or you to see. And from the employer's side, there's a pool of candidates that they can, I'm assuming, look through or you will present them. But that simple kind of action obviously needs to be backed up by some pretty complex tech in the background. Tell us what that tech looks like.
1: So for Parkland's technology and the way that we approached it, you know, we we did follow very lean Methodologies when we started the business, we we came out with an MVP. We tested it. You know, our candidates even interested in signing up. This is the proposition we're putting out there. And employers, are you even interested in this model and accessing these types of candidates? So, fortunately, we had that proof of concept and that product market fit validated quite quickly, and then we moved on to sort of continuing to build. And we looked at a number of ways to sort of get the MVP out of blocks and how we could iterate on that product quite rapidly. And we decided we would build something ourselves and. Again, in our category, there's a lot of great businesses and quite innovative startups doing different things and solving similar problems with a different lens. But we were very, very fixated on not being a job sport because there's great job sport technology you can pretty much take out of the box and customize and away you go. And you know, for many reasons, that could have solved a lot of the things we were trying to do by offering them this two-sided marketplace and lovely ux and great user experience to be able to do that but our proposition was also saying that we wanted to have matching built into the platform so we as php and we built the platform so that we would enable both the candidates and in the future the employers to access the ability to match. And you know, what, what I'm saying there is we take the profile information, we take sets of data, but we'd enable candidates within the platform to speak to each other and be matched with each other to maybe form a job share team and for employers to be able to tap into certain matches within that talent community. So we build our own.
0: I love the word that you've used there, match, because I think it's worth kind of disclosing at this point that your background, (laughs) as well as technology, has also been match-related. Do you want to tell uh, the the listeners about your background and what led you to this idea of matching candidates with employers?
1: Yes, so I have a background in marketplaces, digital marketplaces, but one of the favourite Businesses and, and jobs I ever had was working at Fairfax Media, and one of the brands I worked on was RSVP, which is a dating site. And part of that product and uh, I guess user experience very much is hinged in its ability to deliver great matching capabilities. And that idea that you know you can build algorithms behind what constitutes the best match based on data. And so we took a lot of that learning and insight, I guess, into this recruitment industry proposition, which was about matching great talent and what constitutes a great match. In the same way that, you know, a date might look great on paper and then you meet and that chemistry's not there or just don't like them, we felt the same applied for both job share, but also for candidates being matched with employers. So that's where we're going. We really want to get more into AI and figure out where the future of work is headed in terms of talent matching.
0: It's genius, isn't it? Because really it's it's about personalization and, and understanding what each party is interested in. Yes. You're a mother of three, you're a wife, you're a female startup founder, and you are a surfer now, too, I hear. <laughs> <laughs> a budding surfer. Two weeks in. How do you juggle all of this commitment? You know, I, I I think, you know, this is kind of the magic in what you're doing is how you manage to make it all work. Oh, look, the juggle is such
1: a hot topic amongst everyone right now, but particularly working parents. And, you know, I would say with brutal honesty that I juggle very badly most of the time, but you also need to give yourself a break and realise that you are doing the best you can every day, whatever that best might look like. Some days it's a lot better than others. I have a husband that really supports both my career, the job that I'm doing within Puffling, but also works flexibly and takes on you know equal share with me, which has been the only option for us entering a startup with him having a very um, you know, complex and full-on job and three young children, and we've also just added another layer in by living an hour out of the CBD, so you mm. know <laughs> just 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 to mix it up and add some complexity to the already. Crazy logistics. So the answer to the juggle is I think you've got to make your choices and for us it was very much about lifestyle and and I wanted to be in a business that enabled me to work flexibly. Now, it's not saying that I'm there and working the hours I want to work. I'm still doing my hours that I want to work, but I do have the ability to drop off children, work in the evenings, write off half a day, wherever I need to because I want to put family ahead of, you know, the crazy priorities of a corporate job.
0: And you're up in Avalon and is it well set up for startups up there?
1: So I work in a great space, I'm sitting here now, and I share the space with a lot of people like me. So there's a couple of entrepreneurs in here and there's other people that have corporate jobs that only want to go to the city a couple of days a week so they take a space here. So I think for the same reasons that we chose this place to live, there's a lot of families who have chosen lifestyle and want their children to grow up with a little bit more space and to have, you know, access to... Beach and national parks, and a great local community and school, but at the same time, not ready to move you know, six hours outside of a major city. So, yeah, I'm lucky I've I've managed to sort of maintain an office space up here. I, I use the city a couple of days a week, and we've also got office spaces at home. So, yeah, we're really trying to leave the flexible work values at home in the Wilson household.
0: And it's really, by the sounds of it, just like you say, about making choices and really kind of making a decision on what's important to you and and making work work around it. So, Leah, I'd love to ask you a few questions beyond the context of coronavirus, flexibility and diversity, that we ask of all of our mentors. Is there a book that has changed your life?
1: I might see if I can bend the rules a bit (laughs) The one that comes to mind first for me is raising boys because it changed my life, of course, being a mother. And I remember reading this book as soon as I had my first son. I didn't know I was having a boy. Someone gave it to me and I read it and I just remember falling my eyes out and not making it through the first, whatever it was, third chapter because it, it said that I still remember this. They only need their mums, not to seven, and of course that's not what it says at all. It talks about different phases needing different mentors and different, you know, figures in their lives. But I've come back to it since with now a seven-year-old and a five-and-a-half-year-old. they Still need you? <laughs> and, you know, they definitely still need me. But I think it really has been a, a book that's left such an impact to me, on me. And now, of course, you know, with this lens I've got as well of the working world and and where that's all headed, and, and how these boys are going to grow up and what opportunities they're going to have in life and at work. So that's definitely been a book that always has stuck with me. And the other one that I think I'd say is Daring Greatly because, again, everyone takes something different out of it, but there's a very big theme about vulnerability.
0: Is that Brene Brown?
1: Yeah. And the vulnerability for me is something I think I've had to really work at and I have to keep working at, but sort of acknowledging that that's part of me and whether it's me work, me mum, me friend, me wife, whatever there's a real positive to that. And, you know, I I just think the leadership that we're seeing in the world and everyone wants to talk about different styles of world leaders and just seeing that difference in some of the styles of the world leaders right now, vulnerability for me is a really powerful and quite special characteristic.
0: I've read that book too and it is a poignant book because I think as Brene Brown says, she really struggled with vulnerability. So, uh, you know, yeah. someone who is writing self-help books to kind of disclose that their struggle is to be vulnerable day in, day out, even post writing a book about it. Yeah, And I, I couldn't agree more. I think that that element and trait in people is something that is just we're hardwired to be hard you know especially our generation x we were independent we were having to earn our own money as women we weren't really encouraged to have children for some strange reason we were kind of you know marriage and children was something to do when you were you know older you know this idea of being vulnerable and actually being part of a team and and collaborating is certainly something i I totally relate to as well Mm -hmm. What about habits? Do you have any habits that you really rely on and, or credit, I guess, for improving your life?
1: In terms of habits, I guess the, the one that's always been in my life and I can't really deal with is is I'm a morning exercise person. And as I've got older and, you know, things have changed in terms of priorities, I don't necessarily get the time that I once did to do it, but I need something in the morning. That is the absolute way to start my day it might be a 15 minute walk with one of the kids or 10 minutes on the beach or it might be a you know super hardcore exercise session but i, I can't start my day without something exercise related and before six thirty, like it has to be 5 6 o'clock for me and that starts my day and it resets my whole mindset and it's a very different day in the days that i don't get exercise in so I think that's a habit I just need to bake into my daily life because I'm an awful person about it for everyone. <laughs> and then I think, like, I've always used Trello at work. And last year, my husband's a very well-organized list maker. He just lives by lists, he's just really good at lists. And so we moved to Trello at home, which sounds similar, but we have all these different Wilson boards at home. And then I've got my work one, he's got his work one, and our personal Trello board is absolutely our go-to for getting things done and being on top of life. So it's everything from, you know, daily admin to things we need to fix at home to you know, planning of travel to forms have to fill out for children to all our resolutions for the year.
0: Do you have two boards or just one that you share?
1: We have heaps. We have heaps. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it works fast. we finally perfected it. And so that, that's a habit. We both get into our travel board. We have a meeting on a Monday. We go through it. It's very nerdy.
0: Very organised. I'm very impressed by that. And when you kind of get overwhelmed or things aren't organised or kind of planned out, what are the things or what are the mechanics for you that kind of get you re-motivated or re-energised? Is it, is it exercise and, and getting up early or is, it, is there a certain kind of mantra or something that you do in your day to really push you through negative thoughts
1: I think for me I've always struggled with achievement so if I don't finish my day I feel like I've ticked everything off and I've kicked goals and you know I, I kind of fall to pieces a bit and I think I've had to get better at realizing that some days that's not going to happen certainly in a startup community and lay about on the facts with children that throw you know curveballs everywhere and some days it just doesn't happen and I'm not great at it but I am getting better at saying, well, you, know, you can break your day or your week up and, and reset and so I often just have to walk away. Like I just sometimes go, I've done nothing productive this morning or this has not gone to plan, I'm going to finish up here or let's go outside or let's try something different because We all, I think, sometimes get guilty of just working 16 hours a day just to punish yourself or try and get back on some hamster wheel that you've fallen off and and sometimes it's not helpful. So I I think for me it's been about acknowledging that sometimes you just have to let it go and it's not working and tomorrow will be a new day. And that's my dad used to always say that to me, the sun will still come up tomorrow, Leah, and it does. So, yeah, I'm trying to now break my world up into days rather than, get into the anxious state of continually forward planning and obsessing over things that didn't go right or I didn't tick off.
0: What does success look like for you? If, if you can now take this more kind of, I guess, holistic approach of being more present in the day-to-day and achievement is kind of measurable by how you feel about things, what, what is your measure of success for you? What does it look like?
1: Oh, look, I feel like I'm really old saying this, but I think success for me is just being able to be kind of proud of your footprint. So whether it's you're proud of the business legacy that you've created or the things you've taught your children or the experiences you've been on to share, it's about being able to look back and say, look, I've done things that I'm really proud of. And it's quite simple, but I guess it's evolved into that and it's a bit of an all-encompassing thing for me. Like I think if you can be proud of where you're at and acknowledge that failure is okay and, you know, there's things I've done in, in sort of my career that haven't worked out the way i, I thought and I didn't think I'd end up at the place I am now but I, I feel quite proud that, you know, this is a business that can, can change the future.
0: So hopefully this is
1: Puffin's time to shine.
0: If you could speak to everyone, if you had a voice that was going to be out and proud in the world, what would you be saying right now?
1: Uh, Right now, if I had a voice that could kind of get to everyone in the world, I think the one thing I'd just say is look out for people and be really kind because this is a tough time and it's going to be a very, very tough period that we all find ourselves in. Many of us have not been in generations that have been through this kind of big stuff and mental health is a frightening 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 thing that we need to all be better at dealing with so i think we just really need to look after each other group hugs group hug
0: (laughs) thank you so much leah that's been absolutely fascinating and i can't wait to uh to like re-listen to it and take some of those insights away with me thank you Thank you so much for tuning in to the new podcast series from Digital Collective Co. It has been such a pleasure to interview our fascinating guests and inspiring to hear stories and insights of success and adversity from business leaders and entrepreneurs. Subscribe now to hear the third episode of A Moment with Modern Mentors with Lizzie Bland from Lean Bean Fitness.